Good morning. All righty. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We invite you here to fill our hearts with your presence and our minds with your truth. We ask that your angels will put a hedge of protection around us, and not just for today, but as we move forward to be lights for you in this world. We pray that our study will glorify you today. We also want to lift up to you those who have special needs, and we want to remember um, the friend of uh, Tim and Brittany who is having brain surgery today, that you will guide the surgeons and that it will go in accordance with your will. We pray that you will be with uh, Helen Hurt and uh, she will uh, uh, have the resources provided that you know she needs. I pray for uh, Dennis Kiley that uh, he's going through his uh, cancer treatments and that you will guide and bring healing to him and, and strengthen him and, and his family. And my brother Bill, as he's in the hospital, may you strengthen him and may he be a uh, pull through. We pray in your holy name. Amen. All right, we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly redemption in Romans. And the title this week is All Have Sinned. All Have Sinned. And the first sentence, I hope this jumped out at you, the first sentence uh, in the um, uh, lesson this week, I'm going to read it to you here. It says, unless a person acknowledges that he or she is unrighteous, that person will sense no need for justification. God's, and, and, and then, and justification, and then parentheses. What is justification? Parentheses. God's declaration of a sinner as righteous in his eyes. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. First, first, just, do we all agree that a person generally doesn't seek help if they don't recognize that there's a problem. You know, we don't call for repairmen if we don't realize something's broken, or we don't go to the ER if we're not sick. We don't need a savior if we're not sinners. Isn't that true? Okay, so there's no question that uh, if we don't recognize that we have uh, unrighteousness, if we're unrighteous, that we won't, we won't see a need for a savior. So we have no problem with that truth, do we? No, that's all pretty straightforward. But uh, as we anticipate next week's lesson, and I really want to get your mind thinking about that, because next week's lesson, if you look ahead to lesson four, the title next week is Justified by Faith. So the whole lesson next week is going to be on justification by faith. So I want you to be thinking about this whole, this whole description here, this definition. Um, is God's justification doing something to God so he can change the way he sees us? Did I misread that? God, justification, God's declaration of a sinner as righteous in his eyes. How do you understand that? Sounds like that's something happening so he can see us in a certain way. Hmm. Um, is it something like this? I, God, declare that I now see um, this sinner as righteous. Wink, wink, angels in heaven. Uh, we all know the sinner really isn't righteous, but let's all pretend he is because I've, I've declared it so. So next week, the entire lesson is going to be on this question of what is justification. I, maybe I'm misunderstanding what they mean by this idea of God's declaration of a sinner is righteous in his eyes. Um, you, you all think about that, look at that, and let's, let's explore this justification, what it means next week. Ellen White makes it clear let no one take the limited narrow position that any of the works of man can help in the least possible way to liquidate the debt of, trans of his transgression. This is a fatal deception. 
If you would understand it, you must cease haggling over your pet ideas and with humble hearts survey the atonement. This matter is so dimly comprehended that thousands upon thousands claiming to be sons of God are children of the wicked one because they will depend on their own works. God always demanded good works, but the law, the law demands it. But because man placed himself in sin where his good works were valueless, Jesus' righteousness alone can avail. Christ is able to save to the uttermost because he ever liveth to make intercession for us. What do you think about these two paragraphs? Anybody want to tell me what they mean? This, this is what I want, I want to do. I want us to break it down. When we read stuff like this, we should stop and say, okay, what's it mean? What's it mean? So let's break it down. Let's, let's look at that first, maybe the first difficult phrase is liquidate the debt of his transgression. What do you think it means to liquidate the debt of his transgression? When we sin, we have a debt. What kind of a debt? Death. Okay. Death. Death as in what? So what kind of a debt is it? Is it a debt of uh, a legal uh, enactment, a, a, a penalty imposed? Oh, a consequence of our condition? So what do you all think, this, this statement? Liquidate our debt. When we sin, we have debt. Who, who are we indebted to? Do you see the language is already leading us in a certain direction? So what I did is I got out my dictionary and I looked up the words liquidation and debt to see what what do the words actually mean because we we can connote different things to them and we hear it and we automatically think some type of of we owe something. That's what we usually think, right? So the first word I looked up was liquidate. And liquidate, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, has several possible meanings. One meaning is, uh, and, and you have to pick. I'm going to read some meanings. You all pick which one you think is appropriate for the context here. Uh, so liquidate, to determine by agreement or by litigation the precise amount of damages or indebtedness. Does that sound like it's fitting here? Okay. Uh, to determine the liabilities and apportion assets towards discharging a debt. Um, an archaic meaning is to make clear, to make something clear. Or how about this one? To do away with. Oh, okay. So we're going to do away with. I like, do, do you all think that's probably the meaning here? So liquidate the debt to do away with the debt. Okay. And then the other last meaning was to convert assets into cash. Probably not that one. Okay. So the one that fits best, isn't it? To do away with. Okay. So then what about debt? Do you know if you look up, and I looked up a couple different dictionaries just to make sure, that has two primary meanings. One is something owed. The other is sin or trespass. Did you know that? So when we read this, to liquidate our debt, how about to do away with our sin? Now, is that so hard to understand now? Do we get confused by that? That's pretty straightforward. It clears it right. It's like, whoa. And see, what happens, we read these things and we bring to it these misdefinitions, maybe. So I don't have a problem at all that uh, our works cannot in the least help do away with our sin. Can it? No, it can't. That's pretty straightforward. And then it goes on to say that what does help, the only thing that can help is the righteousness of Christ. It says, Christ's righteousness alone can avail. So what is it that Christ's righteousness avails? Avails to accomplish what? What does his righteousness avail to accomplish? A a change in people. 
Okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I like that. Any other thoughts? It avails to accomplish a change in people. Hmm. Have you heard it described in any other way? Buys our freedom. Yeah, because I was going to ask the other question. His answer doesn't even, I can't even ask my next question. It was so good. His answer was so good because my next question was, avails with whom? You see? But if it's a change in people, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's availing to change people. But do you ever hear the other ideas that, that the robe of Christ's righteousness does something? Covers what? For what purpose? Traditionally, is it taught? So it goes back to what we read in the, in the, in the first sentence of the quarterly, that being justified is, quote, God's declaration of a sinner is righteous in his eyes. So now Christ's righteousness is availing to change the way God sees us? Or is it availing to change sinners? Which do you think is most reasonable? Change sinners or change the way God sees us? Or does God have a change in the way he sees us when Christ's righteousness changes us? Will God change the way he sees us if we're not changed? Why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So yes, God's love for us has never, never been in question, has it? Hmm. Well, as we answer that, look at this question of righteousness, let's look to Sunday's lesson. Very top of Sunday's lesson, it quotes the scripture, one of Romans. It says, Paul speaking, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, or in some versions, who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith. Now, a couple of questions on that. First, what do you hear Paul saying is God's power? What is the power of God in this passage? The gospel is the power. So the power of God isn't a laser weapon or a flaming sword or or thunder and fire coming down from heaven at the end. It's not physical might. It's not pressure, threats to punish. That's not the power. Oh, the power of love. And I want to ask you, what's more powerful in your own life? What's more powerful? Physical threats to do you harm? Or love. What has more power over you? Isn't that true? What would you do for others more? Because someone's threatening you to do this for that person. Or when you love that person. Which has more power? Yes. I was talking about what has power. Fear or love. Threat or coercion. Which has more power? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. How many of us have no fear? All human beings are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Core emotion associated with that is fear, survival of the fittest, watching out for number one, being apprehensive, worried, worried about not being loved, not being valued, not getting that grade, not getting that girl, not getting... We, we all have fear. That is the root. That's one of the, that is the infecting principle of our hearts and minds since Adam and Eve sinned. It's perfect love casts out all fear. Now, can God cast fear out of our heart by threatening us? Can he cast out fear from our heart by using his incredible might and power? See, I understand about people's different perspectives, characteristics, personalities, and all that stuff, but I really wasn't talking about people. I was talking about the power that God can wield to achieve his goals. Which is more powerful in God's hands to achieve his goals? Exercising of, of activities that incite fear or exercising the power of love. 
What does the scripture say never fails? Yes, love overcomes fear, destroys fear. Love will never ultimately fail. So um, when we look at just individuals, you're right. They're individuals who really have never experienced love. Therefore, they, love has no real power in their life because uh, they've never had that, that opportunity to experience it. But when we look at where God is coming from and the power that he wields to reach us, which is going to ultimately be more powerful. Why will this universe ultimately be a safe place? Because God has power, and with his power, we have angels with flaming swords on every corner, threatening to punish, so we all live in fear. I I won't do anything wrong, because I know if I do, God's watching every second and get me. Or will the power of love have converted our hearts so much that every person loves others so much more than themselves, they would never, ever even think of doing harm to another? Which makes the universe safe. We have to be careful who we're dealing with because some people haven't yet experienced love. And, and this is why I think the scripture says that the, the uh, things of God are foolishness to the things of the world. They can't get their mind around how you can love somebody and have power. That looks like weakness, right? Yeah. And in fact, in the church, get this. This is a great, it just popped in my mind. But this is one of the things we face in the church. That people who, who when we present a God of love, they accuse us of presenting a marshmallow God, a weak God, a powerless God. Uh, uh, a namby-pamby God, because they say at the end, God has to rise up and use physical might and power to punish and kill and destroy. Well, we'll come back to that. It's going to be in the lesson today. This is a good point. I like it. So, um, as we move on, though, so the, the, the power we have, God's power is the power of love, and of course, this is why it says in Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 4, the kindness of God leads us toward repentance, and it's going to be in one of the days as we come along here. So the question, what is righteousness? The lesson says that righteousness is being right with God. That's what the lesson says in, in Sunday's lesson. Righteousness is being right with God. What do you think about that definition? The character of God is certainly righteous. I, I, yeah, and so I, I wouldn't see those as opposition. I would think there's harmony there because as God reproduces his character in us, as we're changed, reborn, recreated, regenerated, uh, have the law written on the heart and mind, uh, we're then in harmony with his character. So I would see that. We're, yeah, I, so I, I think the definition being right with God is okay. But what would it mean to be right with God? What would that mean? Be in harmony with his principles. I like that. And so we turn it the, the question the backwards way. What is it that keeps us from being right with God? Why are we not right with God already? What, what's in the way of that? We don't trust him. Yeah? Is being right with God, being right with God, the same as being declared right with God? I was talking to my nephew last evening, and I was trying to talk about some of these things. I said, which, is, which, is, which, which would you rather be? Let's say you've got cancer. Would you rather be cancer-free or be declared cancer-free? It, it, he's 11. It, did, it, was, it didn't take a second for him to figure that out. Oh, be cancer-free. Okay, figure that out like this. Okay, what would you rather be? Righteous or be declared righteous? I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this is not a trick question. Yet somehow we have this other thing that's infected Christian thought that being justified is to be declared something. Well, I don't have a problem with God declaring it as long as he's also done it to us. Can we separate being declared righteous from a change in the believer? If you go to Romans chapter 4, where this is the the passage where God declared uh, 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 Abraham righteous, it says that first Abraham experienced something. Abraham trusted God and then was recognized or counted declared righteous. So Abraham was in a position of distrust at some point. And through the working of the Holy Spirit, evidence being brought, 
conviction being laid upon his heart, at some point Abraham made a decision to trust God. And so he was moved from a position of distrust and rebellion to a position of trust and was then recognized as righteous. Did a change happen in Abraham? Yeah. That was the big change. It went from someone who was opposed and an enemy of God to someone who is now trusting in God for his regeneration, healing, and salvation. And that's being set right. So when you justify your margin on your, on your uh, word processor, what do you do? You pardon it, right? Forgive, I forgive you. You take what's out of harmony, out of line, and you put it in line. And what is it that's out of line? It's the hearts and minds of men. We're out of harmony with God. We're out of line. So it's very straightforward. Does this give us insight into why only the righteousness that comes from God is acceptable? And this is a, one of my favorite passages because it really sums up, this is from Ellen White, Desire of Ages 762, it really sums up this relationship between Christ's mission, the law, uh, our, our, our situation, what Christ did for us. Desire of Ages 762. And many people in, in, a, in a certain model believe the law requires a death penalty be paid. Or the law requires an appeasement. Or the law requires some type of, of, of you know, penalty. Here's what it says. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life. A perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What is God's law claiming? Perfect righteousness. Why? Why would God's law claim that? That's who he is. And because, okay, God is righteous. God is love. So when God went, by the way, if we go back in time, just reverse time, this all before earth was created, before Lucifer sinned, before angels were created, all the way back to, to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're, we're at that point in universal history. Was the law of love in existence then? Why was it in existence then? Because God is love. So where does the law of love originate? An enactment, a legislation, a, a rule imposed upon, or is it just an expression of God himself? So here we have the God of love. This is who he is. When he begins to create, what protocol, template, do you think he will design life to operate upon? Won't it be the law of love? It's very simple. God is love. That's who he is. And he's the creator. So everything is created to operate in harmony with his own nature and character of love. That's why all things hold together through him and so forth. And so... This is why the law requires righteousness, because law, the life is built by God to operate in harmony with this law. And so you've read in other places where it says a law cannot be changed to meet the sinner in his sinful state. So if we look at this a design template principle on the law of, on a physical level, there's a law of respiration. In order to be alive and live, we have to breathe. It's a law. If you, if you deviate from that law, tie a plastic bag over your head. Someone else comes now, you're, you're, you're a lawbreaker. You are lawless. You are outside the law. You're tying a plastic bag over your head. Respiration is being violated. Will someone paying a legal penalty help you? Someone else being killed in your place in that situation help you? No. Can the law be changed to meet you in that place. No, that's what it means. The law can't be changed to meet us in sin because sin is a deviation from the very design protocols upon which life is built to operate. It can't be changed. So this is what it means. The law requires it. It requires The law of respiration requires you breathe. You have to breathe. You can't deviate from it. But because of Adam's sin, we couldn't fix our situation. 
We couldn't do it. So what's to say? But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through. Other model says through a legal penalty paid in their behalf. This says through the forbearance of God. We have forgiveness of sins passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. You see, this is just a restoration of putting humankind back in harmony with God's original design for humankind. That's what the plan of salvation is. Sin deviated mankind from his plan. It was a death spiral, a terminal condition. Christ came to fix all that. Thursday's lesson. Let's jump to Thursday. How often do we get to Thursday? So, let's jump to Thursday. Top paragraph says, a five-year-old boy pushed his little sister down. And the parents made him say he was sorry. He didn't want to. And out of the side of his mouth, with no sincerity and gaze boring into the ground, he barely squeezed out the words, sorry. Hardly true repentance. Have we ever seen that? (laughs) Yes, I've seen it recently. Yes. Listen to this question. Can God enforce his law? Is God's law enforceable? What is God's law? Law of love. And what does it look like to be in harmony with God's law? Would repentance be part of harmony with God's law? A repented heart. Yeah. Can God get repentance by the exercise of force? Can he get the law written into our hearts by the exercise of force? Can he get love in our hearts by exercising force, by enforcing love, by uh, by by using power and might to enforce this law. Can he get love back into our hearts? Can he get Sabbath enjoyment? Remember it says you have to call the Sabbath a delight. Can he cause us to enjoy Sabbath by the exercise of force? How about cheerful giving? Remember the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Can he get cheerful givers by the exercise of force? Are you seeing the point here? Is God's law enforceable? Can he enforce and use might and power to make happen in hearts and minds his law? Do you see the point I'm making here? God is all-powerful. There's no question about it. Why doesn't he just use his power? What's it say in Zechariah? Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And what's the Spirit described as by Christ? The Spirit of what will come? The spirit of truth, and is the spirit of love. The spirit works by presenting truth and love. Do you find that when you are presented with truth in a loving way, and genuinely given freedom to come up with your own conclusion, that that is more persuasive than someone telling you what to believe under threat? It's a big, big time more persuasive. And so... Out of a review on Herald, July 17, 1888, it says the following, The Holy Spirit will not compel men to take a certain course of action. We are free moral agents. When sufficient evidence has been given as to our duty, it is left to us to decide our course. 
Do you like that or not like that? I like it. Yeah. Look at the evidence of Old Testament. God, uh, after, God sent a flood. Big power. And afterwards, they were building the Tower of Babel because they loved and trusted him. Oh, no. No, they were, were rebelling because they didn't trust him. Um, God uh, used ten plagues in Egypt. Uh, sea was parted, walked through on dry ground. Pharaoh's armies destroyed. Fire uh, by night, uh, pillar, uh, fire by day and by night. Uh, pillar smoke by day and fire by night. Anyway, big power. Thunder, Sinai. Thunder. And from that point on, you know, what were they doing 40 days later? Having an orgy in front of a golden calf. Got lots of loyalty from that, didn't they? How about Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel. Fire falls and all the people fall down. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, that would be pretty powerful, wouldn't it? Better, better, better than the fireworks out here tomorrow night, I think. What do you think? Yeah. And after that, trust and loyalty from the children of Israel from that point forward. Now, every time there's exercise of might and power, did it get, could God by might and power get his love and loyalty written in the heart? No, you can't get love and loyalty by exercise of might and power. So I think there, part of that is that evidence. And why do it? Then why would he go ahead and do it? Parents, do you ever, ever uh, raise the voice with the child? Do you ever put him in timeout? Do you ever even sometimes turn him over your knee? Why? Because they are already living such mature and loving ways. No, it's because they're doing something that if it's not corrected, they're heading in a course of self-destruction. True? And your intervention is to try and turn them from a self-destructive course. And will you risk being misunderstood? Will you risk, you know, uh, giving that child a spanking? And I got to tell you, my mom had to do that and my dad had to do that uh, on more than two occasions in my life. And I can tell you, and this is how children think, when a child is being disciplined, uh, is a child thinking, I just love my parents so much for correcting me and putting me on the right path, I just appreciate this? Or are they actually plotting some type of vengeance in their mind? (laughs) Isn't that true? I hate you. You will be sorry. I'll never speak to you again, and you will regret having disciplined me. Little bottom lip goes out, right? Isn't that true? Did God take those same risks in Old Testament times of being misunderstood? He risked his children hating him and not liking him. Does that show that he's a God that doesn't love? Or does it show more incredible love on his part that he would take those risks to reach? So I don't find the stories of the Old Testament to be showing a God of anger and wrath or a mean-spirited, unloving God, but a God that's incredibly loving to go to the nth degree to reach his children who are bent on destroying themselves. Then a second paragraph, which I think, uh, this is the Thursday lesson, but I think the, the lesson says very well. Listen to this, very well. It says, we should notice that God's goodness leads, not forces, sinners to repentance. God uses no coercion. He is infinitely patient and seeks to draw all men by his love. A forced repentance would destroy the whole purpose of repentance, would it not? If God forced repentance, then would not everyone be saved? For why would he force some and not others to repent? I think that's well said, don't you think? Very well said. And then the lesson after this very positive insight regarding God's inability to get forgiveness or anything else he wants by the exercise of force, ask this question. 
Very next question. I mean, very next question in the lesson. What comes to those who resist God's love, who refuse to repent and remain in disobedience? And then they give us a, a text to look up, Romans 2, 5 through 10. And I will read to you Romans 2, 5 through 10. And remember the context here. The lesson is just beautifully described. God cannot get what he wants by coercive pressure. And then they ask the question, but if you don't repent, listen, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when he, his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Let's explain that. That's scripture. So God believe it? God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? Or should we ask, what does it mean? How do you understand the meaning of those words? Oh, say that louder. He says, back up to chapter one and read. Excellent. So Paul, who wrote these words about storing up wrath for the day of wrath, uh, just, oh, and, and remember when, when Paul wrote Romans, there were no chapter verse divisions. It was one letter. So it was a, it was one constant flow. So the people reading this would automatically connect this with what he wrote just previously in chapter one. And so in chapter one, starting in verse 18, Paul says, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Chapter one. And you notice he says the wrath of God will one day at the end of time after the judgment be revealed, right? Is that what he said? No, is being revealed. He's saying right now, today, here in A.D., um, let's see, A.D. 50 or something, whenever Paul wrote this, um, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed. Present time, in Paul's day, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, follow this on through. He tells us why the wrath comes. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that men are without excuse. Why are men without excuse? They have evidence of what around them? Of God's character, of his nature. What's the nature of God? God is? So we have evidence all around us of the loving nature of God. So men are without excuse. For although they knew God, wait, wait, they knew him. Listen, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. What are they exchanging? The glory of God, the knowledge of God, for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So what happens to our mind when we make images to look like reptiles, little lizards, little alligators, you know, little Florida gators, um, make these little gators and, and we go out and we worship them. Dear Lord Alligator, help me grow up to be like you one day. What happens to our mind? The scriptures are clear, but it doesn't have to be an alligator. What, what are people worshiping right here today in America? Vampires right now, aren't they? I'm not kidding. I, I, can't, I have so many young girls that come see me. 
and they are all in love with some vampire. <laughs> Somebody named Eddie, I think, or Edward. Edward. Say she knows. It's Edward. Yeah. <laughs> they are. What is this? Therefore, God did something. Because he's presented truth. He's presented evidence. He's presented the way of health. He's presented how life is built to operate. The law of love and operation in nature. Paul's just describing for us right here in verse 20. And so because God has given all this evidence and doesn't coerce, he actually leaves us free. If we reject this evidence, if we choose a lie over the truth, therefore God takes an action. What does he do? Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for degrading their bodies. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Here it is again. Truth of God exchanged for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then, if we keep on moving, it says, in the same way, the man abandoned normal relationships and so forth. And then in verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. So we're asking the question, what is this wrath? What is this wrath thing? Well, Paul tells us God's wrath is being revealed right now, here, today. And what is it God is doing? For these people who reject the truth, who don't want to know me, who prefer lies, who make images and worship themselves, God does something to them. What does he do? He turns them over. So what does it mean then in this other verse in chapter 2 when he says they are piling up wrath for the day of wrath? What's that mean? Well, according to Paul in a different book to the Galatians, where does the punishment arise? From where does punishment arise? According to Paul, Galatians 6 verse 8. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. From that nature reaps destruction. Wait a minute, I thought God punished This is a divergent view. The common view taught in Christianity is that God is not only the source of life, God is the source of death. God is not only the source of goodness, but he's the source of pain and suffering and torture. I disagree with that view. The Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. It says in James chapter 1 that sin, when full grown, brings forth death. From from our own nature, we reap destruction. So then what about God's judgment? Because it talked in this passage also about God's judgment. Does God's judgment determine the condition, situation, or punishment of the wicked? What do you think would happen in this world today, right now, if God completely removed the Holy Spirit and all his angels from earth right now? What would happen? What's it say in Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1? An angel came out of the east, coming to the four angels, holding back the four winds, telling them, and and the four angels, by the way, they were told to hold, 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 and the people got it sealed in their forehead. But the four angels are described as having a power. What is the power they're described as having? The power to harm the land and the sea. The four angels have the power to harm the land and the sea. But what what are they actively doing? Holding, holding, holding. So what would their power to harm be? To let go what they're holding. What are they holding? They're holding back the evil, uh, evil actions and hearts of both men and angels. That's what they're holding. They're holding in check satanic principles and powers. Principalities and powers of darkness. That's what they're holding back. 
And there's going to come a time they're going to let go. When are they going to let go? According to Revelation 7. When the people of God or the servants of God, excuse me, the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And what is the seal? It's not a mark that we can see. It's so settled into the truth about God, intellectually and spiritually, that you cannot be moved. Job was a man who was sealed. No matter what happened, it wouldn't shake him out of it. And when that happens, I'll just tell you, if you want to see what the future is holding, what God's waiting for, he's waiting for this group, and I'm going to come to your, in just a second, Brittany. Um, He's waiting for a group that's described in Revelation 7 as 144,000. That group of people will be so settled into the truth about God, his character, his nature, his principles, his government, having an insight, I believe, of the great controversy that began in heaven and how it has, part, has, has progressed down through history. They'll be so settled that they can't be moved from it. When that group is settled, then the four winds let go. And when the four winds let go, then all this tribulation, t- troublesome times happen. And when that happens, why does that happen? Because most of the world never thinks about these eternal questions. They are caught up in the day-to-day, run-of-the-mill routines, get up, take the kids to school, uh, get, go to work, pay your bills, uh, watch the ball game, watch TV, or, or some other part of the world just trying to survive. They're just caught up day-to-day routines. They never think of eternal realities. When these four winds are loosened and our routines are upset, people begin asking questions. And when those questions come, what's happening to the world? What's, what's going on? That group, represented by the 144,000, already sealed ahead of time, are all over the world as God's witnesses to proclaim the true gospel about him. And if you read the context and flow of chapter 7 of Revelation, from their witness comes a great multitude that, uh, from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people that no one can count that will be saved. And so what God is waiting for right now is a group of us to be so settled, so confident, so sealed in our hearts, minds, and characters that nothing can shake us from it. And when that happens, then he tells his angels to let go. Right now, he's telling them to hold, 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 waiting for a group of us to be settled. And I think, from my reading of it, the, the majority of that particular settled group is supposed to come from the Seventh-day Adventist church. doesn't mean they will come from the Seventh-day Adventist church, but they're supposed to. Just like the apostles came from the Jewish nation, the, this group of witnesses, and then the great multitude comes from the whole world. So it's our privilege, but I'm not sure. I mean, you know, look what's happening. Look what's happening. But that's what I think is supposed to happen. In the text that of, in Romans that talks about the wrath and anger, it says they will, they, there will be wrath and anger, but it doesn't say it comes from God, does it? No. I like it. So back to the question of judgment. Does God's judgment determine the condition, situation, or punishment, or is it merely the proper and accurate diagnosis or judgment of what their situation and condition already is? Any examples? Well, Hosea 4.7. Excuse me, Hosea 4.17. Hosea 4.17. Here's a judgment from God. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Is that not a judgment from God? It's a recognition, a conclusion, a judgment, a diagnosis. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him go. That's God's judgment. How about this great controversy 543? Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict. What's another name for a verdict? Wouldn't it be judgment? Wouldn't it be judgment? Yeah. It declares God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Now, does God's verdict make them incurable? No. What made them incurable? Their own persistent choices over time. Yeah. 
And see, there's this other view out there that God has to sit in judgment to determine the outcome of people. And it's his judgment that decides. And we have this, have you seen the pictures where God sits up on a high tribunal thing and the Ten Commandments are like right in front of him and then you got the sinner looking up and there are angels all around and you're like, ah, like this. you seen these pictures in the slideshows and, and the creator all in the felts a little put in front of the kids and, you know, you've seen them, right? Yeah, and you've got this terrible image in your mind that one day you're going to stand before him and he's going to decide what happens to you. No, the day the judgment comes, that day, the great white throne judgment, your decision has already been made by your own condition. That's what determines in the end. So why do the wicked suffer and die? It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, here's the reason. Very straightforward. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved or so be healed. So imagine we all have a terminal condition. Uh, HIV infected, we're all HIV infected, we're all dying of AIDS, and someone comes along with a remedy that will cure us. And you refuse to believe that remedy will do anything for you, and so because of your refusal to believe it, you won't take it. Why will you die? Because you refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. That's why. We close our minds to the truth. So Paul is saying that all humans, whether Jew or Greek, are infected with selfishness, which is outside God's design protocols for, for life, which is the law of love. We can't fix or heal ourselves. Only by accepting the truth about God and trusting him can we re- restore to unity with him. Those who refuse the truth and prefer lies about God will have their conditions worsen, and when Christ returns, he accurately diagnoses everyone, and each person will suffer according to their own unhealed condition. Does that make sense? Yeah. So knowing all of this, how do we help the little boy in the first part of the paragraph? How do we help someone who is mumbling and forcing the words out of a heart that doesn't really want to say they're sorry? How do we bring someone to repentance? What does is, what is Romans chapter 2 tell us? What brings us to repentance or leads us to repentance? The kindness of God. The kindness of God. We show them what God is really like, how much he's done for us. And, and only in a recognition of God's great sacrifice do we realize, hey, he really does love me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson. Uh, Romans 3.23. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've, how many have, have never heard that? I mean, that thing is like one of the most famous texts. It's right next to John 3.16, right? God loves you and you're a sinner. Well, that's good. I mean, it's true. We are a sinner. Yeah. And God loves us. Good. All right. So we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what does it mean? Well, who is all? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is it all intelligent life in the universe? All mankind. Okay, good. All mankind have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? How do we fall short of God's glory? Maybe I should ask this question instead. When in your life, when in my life, when in our life, did we leave the fullness of God's glory to a place where we fall short? Do you see my question? Did we all, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Well, where was our starting point? At conception. That's our, that's our individual starting point, right? As individual, unique beings, right? And it says in Psalms 51, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So our starting point was short of God's glory. 
Recognize that. You and I personally didn't fall short of God's glory. We started short of God's glory. Adam and Eve, however, they fell short. You follow me? Does this make a difference in how we understand the passage? Have you ever felt like it was your fault? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's my fault. It's my fault I'm short of God's glory. It's not your fault you're short of God's glory. Oh, nice one. It's your fault if you stay short of God's glory. Why? Why would that be your fault? What? It's a choice we make to, to what? To not trust. Because, because we have the power to choose to be as glorious as God, right? We have the power to make ourselves as glorious as God. No. Choose to, choose to be as glorious as God. No. What do we have the power to do? To trust Him, right? Yes. Yes. And there's a supernatural thing that comes. Who writes the law in our heart and mind? God puts his law in our heart and mind. Do you take it from a doctor whose name is, uh, who comes in, or a person who comes in and says, I've got this thing that'll cure you, and, uh, and his name's Osama bin Laden? Will you take a pill from him? Or Kevorkian? Uh, yeah. Or, or Adolf Hitler? Or, will you take a pill from them? Why not? Because you don't trust him. Now, this is very important. This is very important because you see where trust comes in. That's my point. If, if you don't trust of someone... Will you take something from them like that if you don't trust them? No. If you trust them, does your trust cure you or heal you? No. You see, we have been accused recently of teaching a salvation by works system because people have twisted what we say and allege that um, it's our trust that saves us, that I teach trust saves us. It's very twisted. No, trust doesn't save us. But can God save us without trusting him? No. We are saved through faith or through trust, but it's by God's grace or God's healing power that saves us. But only if we trust him. So, understanding. Let's let's look at it this way. Has Christ done what's ever necessary? Whatever it is, we don't have to explain how. But has has Christ achieved what's necessary for our salvation? Yes. So, Satan can no longer try and stop him. Prior to Christ coming to earth, he tried to stop him. On earth, he tried to have baby Jesus killed to prevent it, right? He tempted him in the the wilderness to try and stop him. I mean, Satan was trying to prevent Jesus from doing what was necessary to save us, right? Now, once Jesus finished, though, that option for Satan's closed. He can't prevent it. The, The remedy for sin is achieved. We all agree? So, what's Satan's only remaining strategy? To get us not to trust God. Because the only way that he can keep us now from from being saved is not trusting God such that we will benefit from what Christ has done. As soon as we really trust him, all that Christ has achieved begins being reproduced in us. And we're saved. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're you're talking about those who say that we can't have, through God's grace and power and and dwelling spirit, victorious living. That we have to continue to live in sin. Yeah, and I think that's what happens is there as people begin. First off, they don't understand God's law, law of love. They don't understand lawlessness being outside of the harmony of God's law of love. They don't understand what Christ has done to achieve it, and they make it all behavioral. And so they say, if you say you don't continue to make behavioral mistakes, and you're a liar, and so forth and so on. Yeah, but the the thing about Christian perfection in Scripture, it's never about behavior. It's about hard attitude. That's what it's about. It's about maturing. And this is why they get upset, because they think we're taking away salvation. So, so all sin falls short of the glory of God. Um, we were born this way. We didn't choose it. But because, oh, and by the way, does God know that everyone in this room never chose to be short of his glory? 
that we were born in this condition. See, he's not mad at us. He's not angry. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. He knew this was our situation. We knew we couldn't help ourselves. Now, imagine being a grandparent uh, and, uh, and uh, your, your child uh, goes out into wild living and, uh, and does all these uh, things, IV drugs and stuff, and gets HIV infected. And then they marry another person HIV infected. And they have a kid, your grandchild, born HIV infected. What did your grandchild do wrong? What would your attitude be towards that grandchild? Oh, man, I don't like you at all. Or would you have great compassion and pity on that child? And if you had the power to, to heal, redeem, save that child, would you do it? This is our situation. God looks in and sees, hey, guys, man, I, I have great compassion on you. Without my intervention, you're going to be miserable, you're going to suffer, and you're going to die. I can't do that. I love you too much. So he's not mad at us for this situation. But what gets him sad is after he's gone to this great expense to provide cure, to provide remedy, that we are so cavalier and don't care and don't take it. It's sad because, I mean, how would you feel if you went to great expense to save that grandchild and the grandchild doesn't want to be saved? And so truth is unfolding. That's what it is. We never want to arrive at truth. We want to be growing in our truth and our understanding. And there are many uh, elements uh, that our church got right, but there are elements that need to be continued to be unfolded and, and more deeply in, in, uh, understood that I think have meaning beyond just a, a little building in heaven with smoke going up and things like that. So, all right, let's, let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your truth, for the fact that you want to cleanse us, that you want to take sin from our hearts, you want to write your law on our hearts and minds, that you want to dwell in your spirit temple again. And Lord, we know that it's the lies and distortions and fear and insecurity that keeps the doors of our heart closed. But you have gone to such lengths. You have brought us the truth about yourself. You have poured out the spirit to lead us. Lord, we open our hearts now and we invite you in. Cleanse your spirit temple. Empower us, enable us, settle us into the truth about you that we cannot be moved. And then let us go out to be the shining light that the world can see the truth about you and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.